Our family is curious. We've traveled far and wide in search of who, what, when, where, and why. What we've learned, we write about. We are writers. Hello, I'm your host, Sarah Marinus Vanderschaff, and I'm a writer and the daughter of Pulitzer Prize winner David Marinus. Welcome to the podcast, Ink in Our Blood, where my father and I explore with you our family's culture, legacy, and experiences as writers. In this first season, we'll take a deeper look at how my dad does it, the way he researches and writes in journalism and his 12 books. And in the final episode, we'll talk about the making of his latest book, A Good American Family, The Red Scare and My Father. If you haven't read or listened to it yet, you can get it at an independent bookstore, Amazon, or my dad's website, davidmarinus.com. Hey, Dad, how are you doing? Oh, I'm still hacking away with my asthma, but doing the best I can. Okay. Well, you sound better. Yeah. Um, and today we're going to talk about your latest book, uh, Good American Family, The Red Scare, and My Father, which um, is probably the most personal book you've ever written, I would venture to say. I think that's indisputable. <laughs> and I'm going to start by reading... Um, the description that's in the book jacket. Can I ask a question technically? Who writes that? Do you or does the publisher? It's usually written by someone in the publishing house and edited by moi. Okay. They do a good job, I have to say. Okay. So here's the the description. In a riveting book with powerful resonance today, Pulitzer Prize-winning author David Marinus captures the pervasive fear and paranoia that gripped America during the Red Scare of the 1950s through the chilling yet affirming story of his family's ordeal from blacklisting to vindication. Elliot Marinus, David's father, a World War II veteran who had commanded an all-Black company in the Pacific, was spied on by the FBI, named as a communist by an informant called before the House Un-American Activities Committee in 1952, fired from his newspaper job, and blacklisted for five years. Yet he never lost faith in America and emerged on the other side with his family and optimism intact. So, Dad, the reason I wanted to read that is because today is December 19th, um, 2019, and something happened yesterday that I think we'll be talking about um, for decades, if not centuries to come, Uh, Donald Trump was impeached. And there was something that you wrote, um, I think it was on Facebook. Did you tweet it also, uh, perhaps? But it really brings this book uh, and your perspective. um, uh, It sort of ties everything together in the sense of we're living in such a topsy-turvy world. Uh, Do you remember what you wrote or should I read it? Uh, social media maven that I am. I did write it on Facebook and it went out on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, during the day I was working on my next book and listening to and watching the impeachment hearings all day and night long. And there were several moments that struck me deeply, either for good or for ill. Um, of course, one Republican compared uh, Trump's trials to uh, Jesus Christ's uh, trial by Pontius Pilate. Um, we'll leave that one unsaid. Uh, but another one that just got to me right away was when 
a Republican congressman um, called the Democrats who were trying to uphold the Constitution by impeaching Donald Trump, the Joe McCarthy's of our era. And it just it literally made me, I mean, I'm already suffering a little bit, but it made me physically ill mm-hmm. to think of the, the way that politicians can turn things completely upside down, um, ignore the truth of what's going on in the world, um, elicit fear among their followers um, by projecting what they're doing onto other people. And uh, so that's that's what struck me yesterday. I mean, it wasn't the most important thing that happened yesterday, but it connected directly to my own experience, to my book, to the world that I believe in and want to believe in. And so that's the way I responded. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that um, brings up sort of a f- fundamental question, which is how do you define the Red Scare uh, because it's a term we just use, it's a catch-all phrase, but uh, it doesn't mean anything in particular if it doesn't have some parameters. Just as saying McCarthyism, if, if that can be used, uh, if it can be inverted like that. So so let's get down to it. Um, to you and perhaps to the listener, how can we expand or be more precise with that term, Red Scare? Well, um, it's a period after World War II when there was an ideological struggle between communism and capitalism, when there was it was a time of great fear, of uncertainty and vulnerability. Much of it took place during a period of the Korean War, when there was a direct physical battle between uh, communist China and communist North Korea and the West. In South Korea. It came at a time after 20 years of progressive politics in America, the New Deal, Republicans starting to assert power again and doing it by trying to co-opt Democrats on the issues of patriotism uh, in the Cold War era. And it was also a time when, because of that, Fear was used as a political tool. Civil liberties were greatly endangered. And demagogues like Senator Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin, who led a Senate subcommittee going after communists and alleged communists in the American government, and the House Un-American Activities Committee in Congress, which was holding hearings around the country trying to root out any uh, leftist labor, um, movie actors, anybody who had any sort of social influence, trying to root them out and expose them as enemies of the of the America, as unpatriotic, as communists, and using all of that to define very narrowly what it meant to be an American and what it meant to be someone who loved America. And so when someone says McCarthyism, uh, what does it mean, and how do people uh, misuse it? Well, Joseph McCarthy sort of took the stage in February of 1950 um, at a speech in Wheeling, West Virginia, 
saying, I have here in my hand the names of 205 communists in the American government. He had no such list. Um, that's not to say that there weren't some communists in the American government. Um, there were a few. But the, the hyperbole, the exaggeration, the unwillingness to speak honestly and speak the truth became the hallmark of McCarthy. He became more and more of a demagogue, more and more um, recklessly making accusations that weren't true. Um, and so that's basically what McCarthyism means. And yesterday, you know, this is my own political perspective, but you saw hundreds of Republicans telling lies on the House floor and yet calling the other side McCarthy. Mm -hmm. And ironic to a painful degree when there are um, uh, documented connections between the actual commander-in-chief and um, uh, Russia, uh, let's say, and yet... um, coming from a legacy in which that was what they were supposedly rooting out. Uh, it's just... It's, well, you know, sir, yeah, everything's yes, upside down. Yes, right it's just, You're absolutely right about that. And so, you know, history doesn't repeat itself precisely. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it comes back um, as a bit of a farce, you know, a tragic farce, mm-hmm. but that's basically where we're at right now. And, of course, there's one other connection that's not upside down, which is that Senator Joseph McCarthy's top aide during that period was a New York lawyer named Roy Cohn, mm-hmm. who later went on to become a sort of key consigliere and advisor to young Donald Trump. And at a moment of vulnerability in his presidency, Trump actually uttered the words, where is my Roy Cohn? Yes. Yes, it's a travesty, I think, is what this is. <laughs> um Well, along those lines, then, kind of heading back to the 50s, and actually, we're heading back even further than that, because this story really is about your father and the people in his world, uh, and your mother, um, and their interest, and then their affiliation with uh, the American Communist Party. Um, And I'll start out by saying that our family mythology about this um, has never been very... uh, I guess it's been truly a mythology. For example, I remember hearing, and I don't know if it was you or mom that told me this, that grandma and grandpa were communists in college. And that's kind of where it ended. And that as a consequence of that, um, you know, they were later, uh, you know, blacklisted and and suffered. But in fact, Mm -hmm. you found out Mm -hmm. that it was much more complicated than that. So, but let's talk about what it meant to them uh, when they did and what their understanding of communism was when they were at the University of Michigan and their association. Well, they met at the University of Michigan in the late 1930s. This was a time when we had just, we're still sort of at the tail end of the Great Depression, when capitalism was being tested as never before and failing in many ways over many years. It was a time when fascism was on the rise in Italy and Nazism in Germany. 
It was a time of grave Jim Crow racial segregation in America when millions of Americans were being treated as second-class citizens. And all of those issues, probably especially the last one in particular, race in America, were of vital interest to my young parents. My mother also happened to have an older brother, Bob Cummins, who had, in 1937, before my parents met, gone off after graduating from the University of Michigan and fighting in the Spanish Civil War against Francisco Franco, the right-wing rebel in Spain trying to overthrow the duly elected government there with the support of Hitler and Mussolini. And so I would say that the combination of what was going on in Europe, both in Italy and Germany and in Spain, with that particular connection back to Michigan because of my Uncle Bob, and with those other issues, they were looking for some solutions to the problems of the world. And they turned to the Communist Party for part of that period. And then what was your understanding of their um, affiliation with communism as you grew up and before you wrote this book? You know, it wasn't really talked about in our family. By the time I was two years old when my father was called before the House on American Activities Committee and fired from his job. By the time I was what I would call politically conscious, barely, um, eight years old, living in Madison, Wisconsin, my father had survived that period, and he never looked back. He certainly passed along to me many of the lessons that he had learned from his own experience, including one of never falling for any rigid ideology. And he certainly spoke disparagingly of some of the key demagogues of that previous era, Joseph McCarthy, Richard Nixon, who had been on the House on american Activities Committee, making his name there long before he became a president. Um, but he didn't talk about his own experience, except we knew that he had been fired from his job. We knew that he and my mother had once been members of the Communist Party USA. But he was a long ways from that. And so by the time I was conscious, and so it was sort of the shadow of our family, never directly confronted my older brother, Jim, five years older than me, recalls a few brief conversations with my parents about it. I never really talked to them about it. And the one time I tried decades later when I thought I might write a novel about Part of our experience, um, not directly related to what had happened to him, but sort of the final stages of our recovery, he wouldn't go there. You know, it was the one interview where I utterly failed. I talk, We talked around it for a few hours, but he didn't really delve deeply into that most traumatic period of his life. And so, you know, it wasn't until my mid-60s when I realized that I had to do this book. Did you ever try talking to your mother about it? Not directly, no. Um, I did not. And Why do you think you never did? 
Usually if one parent won't talk about something, you go to the other. <laughs> they usually will, or you try. Well, the reason is because it wasn't on my mind. That's the honest answer. There were so many other things going on in the world. They were in a completely different place. I was writing books about other people, um, and I knew they were uncomfortable with that subject. And so, And I also knew that I certainly wasn't going to write about it while they were alive. So, you know, it's a slight regret that I have that I didn't talk more deeply with them about it. Um, but it was it was not something that was, see, that's the point. It wasn't really bugging me until I started to really get obsessed with this book. I'd gone for more than 60 years sort of desensitized to that period. Maybe there was... Uh, some sort of post-traumatic stress in our whole family about it, but we had recovered so successfully and beautifully that it was just somewhat buried in our past. And I would say that many, many families in this world have something not directly like that, but some trauma in the past history that has not been fully excavated. And it wasn't until I had written books about other people and came to know their families better than they did, you know, whether it was Barack Obama or Bill Clinton, uh, Roberto Clemente or Vince Lombardi. In each case, I started out with them being strangers to me. And by the end, they were not. And they would... You know, I knew more about their family history than they did. But I think that's true of almost any family. No, you know, very few people have biographers going back to explore the mythology of the family. And when I thought about that and explained it, I'll give you, you know, I, I think I maybe already gave an example of, of Barack Obama's step-grandfather in Indonesia, who in his wonderful memoir, Obama says, died fighting heroically against the Dutch in the battle mm. for independence. And I found out he actually fell off a, an ottoman in his living room, changing mm. the drapes. That's the sort of mythology um, that is passed along unchecked. I didn't blame Obama for telling that story. Um, it's what he had heard from his family. But he didn't have until a few biographers came along, anybody really exploring what truly happened. And as I thought about that more and more, I thought, well, I haven't even done that mm. with my own family. It's about time. And um, you've talked a little bit about, as a writer, um, but also as a son, this idea that what if you, the person you knew best, your father, what if you discovered he was a stranger, but in fact, to your assurance, a reassurance, uh, that was not the case. And yet there were some things that you uh, found that did surprise you um, or struck you uh, in a sense that with the um, sensibility that you have now as a man and a grandfather and now looking at your father as a younger man. And you've talked a little bit about this before, but but what about that letter, his statement that you found in a box and, and how that hit you? Can you tell us about that? Finding the statement my father wrote to the House Un-American Activities Committee before his testimony in March of 1952 
was one of the most profound experiences of my book career, my career. Um, I had known that he wanted to deliver a statement to the committee because there was a public transcript of the hearings, um, as there are for all congressional hearings. And in the transcript, my father says, I have a statement I'd like to read about what I think it means to be an American. And the chairman of the committee, John Stevens Wood of Georgia, a Southern segregationist, basically said my father could not read the statement unless he sought absolution, confessed to his sins, and named names, which my father refused to do. So the statement was essentially buried to history. From 1952 to May of 2015, when I was at the National Archives launching my research for this book, there was a few large boxes of documents on the hearings in Detroit by HUAC, the House on American Activities Committee. Inside one of the boxes was a file that said Elliot Marinus. I opened the file and there was the statement. Three pages, a very powerful, profound document on what my father not only thought it meant to be an American, but on the rights of Americans, of free speech, freedom of assembly, and freedom of the press. But as I write in the book, what bowled me over, what just overwhelmed me, was first not the words, but the physicality of it on the page. Because among the many other characteristics of my dad as an old newspaper man with ink in his blood, he was a pretty lousy typist. Um, Hunt and Peck, constantly Xing things out and crossing them out, and the keys would stick on his old upright typewriter. And sometimes anyone who's old enough to have used a typewriter remembers the letters would stick in a way where one letter would jump up a half space. And that's exactly what happened in the first letter of his statement. The yes was up a half space. And when I saw that, for the first time in my life, 2015, I was 65 years old, I felt, I was able to feel what it must have been like for my dad at that moment when he was in the crucible of the most difficult period of his life. I, as, as I said before, I had been somewhat desensitized to it before, um, but it all just washed over me. And I realized the levels of fear and pride and confusion and clarity all combined in that one moment of my father. Um, and it allowed me to feel him in a way that I really hadn't before. Do you think um, that, um, I mean, I know that your dad, uh, Grandpa, uh, was an optimist, and one of his phrases was, it could be worse, <laughs> and so forth. But, I mean, yes. did you ever allow yourself to think, had this, I mean, this is kind of a painful question, but had this episode not happened in his life, what might have been different? 
I have thought about that. Um, and it's a question that takes you into labyrinths. Mm-hmm. Because if it had not happened, you wouldn't do Because you wouldn't have stayed in Madison and then met uh, my mom? We never uh, would have okay. gone to Madison. Right, right. Um, so, you know, you can go a million different directions with those what ifs. Um, so I've thought about it in all of those bizarre, wonderful, odd, strange Ways, but um, the more direct way of thinking about it is, you know, how far do you go back with if this hadn't happened? Um, you know, if my father hadn't come back from World War II and and gone back into the party briefly, or at least worked for a, a leftist newspaper, um, if he had never joined the Communist Party, if the UAC hadn't come, what would have happened? I guess that's the most specific one to deal with. And I don't know the answers. I do know that in a different world, even in this world, my father was a terrific newspaper man, and there were no limits to what he could have accomplished. But that because of his experience, I think he found the most effective, Mm -hmm. safest, protective but free place that he could exist for the rest of his life. And he did that very successfully. And I, um, I'm proud of him for that. I don't hold it against him anyway. But I think that his life would have been different without this. You know, he, he, he was a first-class journalist who could have worked anywhere. Um, the fact that he ended up in Madison was perfect for him because of his circumstances. So, um, and how it would have affected him in a deeper way is another fascinating question. In other words, how does trauma, how does surviving trauma affect the human impulse? And you're right, my father did come out of it as an optimist, Um unlike so many others who went through that period who's, you know, our family was disrupted. Some families were destroyed. Many were. Many former communists became staunch, neoconservative, anti-communists, obsessed with that issue. Others became completely disillusioned. Um, And my father was neither of those. He maintained his idealistic Um, beliefs without the coloring or blindness of to a specific ideology. Um, And so that helped, you know, how he kept that optimism, I think was partly inherent in his personality and partly that it could be worse. He had gone through worse uh, and he'd survived it. Um, and so he imparted that belief, that optimism in his in me, and I've tried to impart that in I my own I think you journey. said he came out of it an optimist, but so much was what he went into it with as well, like you said. I mean, he he was a young man, but he had certain attributes uh, as a high, you know, his... Uh, 
in high school and in college and even in the war that you see consistently um, through the ordeal and after as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, let me go back to his high school because I think that was an important um, point in his life. He grew up in Brooklyn, Coney Island, went to Abraham Lincoln High School. This is in the early 1930s when the school was characterized by brilliant teachers and a principal who were infused with a progressive spirit. The principal, uh, Gabriel Mason, walked around the high school with a copy of Emerson's essays in his back pocket. The teachers were constantly telling their students that you can't afford to be another Mm. lost generation, like the Fitzgerald generation of the 20s, because the world is in too dire of a place right now. You have to go out and try to change the world. And without overstating it, I think that that sort of sensibility is what drove my father to the University of Michigan and into that, its politics. Um, high school, Abraham Lincoln High School, if we can just uh, spend some time there, because it is, uh, it's an amazing place for so many reasons. And just as a, a mother of a student in high school, you know, and, and even thinking back on my own experience. So there's so many reasons why that experience matters in a person's life. Part of it we know now is the brain, you know, like those memories are indelible because of the way the brain is firing. Um, it's meant to be that way. So it's a hugely influential time in a person's life. And one of the characters in your book who was at that high school, who then went on to the University of Michigan, and you have a scene of him driving another guy, obviously, uh, later to go fight in the Spanish Civil War. But Arthur Miller was there. And uh, that uh, concentric circle with your own father, to me, is so interesting, because Uh, We may not know everything that Grandpa wrote, but we know everything that Arthur Miller wrote. And so we can have this sensibility. Um, Can you talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about um, Arthur Miller walking down the halls and his story and then how he went to Michigan and that overlap with Grandpa? Arthur Miller is a a fascinating American story. He Mm -hmm. actually grew up wealthy at first. Um, he lived in Manhattan and would go to school in the back of a limousine. And then hard times struck his family and they moved out to Brooklyn. And he ended up attending Abraham Lincoln High School a few years before my father. Um, and it had, you know, he was not a great student. My father was actually probably a better student than Arthur Miller. But Miller always had that acute eye And in his later writings, many of the experiences or scenes or sensibilities of what he saw in Brooklyn during the Depression and the pressures that were put on fathers, um, in particular, you know, so much of his writing is about fathers and sons. I was influenced by that, as well as... Um, that high school experience. It was a time of great public high schools in New York, great teachers, even an indifferent student can be infected, affected by that. Miller started to read heavily um, in that period. 
and actually didn't get into the University of Michigan for a couple of years because of his grades, but wrote a letter to the dean and persuaded him that he was ready and came to Michigan for about the same reasons that my father came a few years later. One was that the great land-grant universities of the Midwest, especially Michigan and Wisconsin, were more open to East Coast Jewish students than the Ivy League schools were. And so there was a sort of a pipeline of Jewish students coming to those two schools. Michigan was particularly attractive to writers. It had perhaps the most famous writing prize for students in the country, the Hopwood Prize. And it also had a absolutely first-class student newspaper, the Michigan Daily. So Miller came to Michigan and started writing plays. His first plays were written and performed at the University of Michigan and then soon in Detroit. Um, they had to do with ex somewhat with experiences of labor and of fathers who owned manufacturing plants like his own father had, um, sort of capturing both the internal dynamics and contradictions and complications of an individual life and the larger pressures of capitalism and American success on those, much as he would for the rest of his career. And he wrote for the Michigan Daily with my uncle Bob, the one who went off to the University of Michigan, became, as you uh, alluded to, great friends with Ralph Nefus, who was one of the three Michigan students or two Michigan students who joined my uncle to go fight in the Spanish Civil War. And there's this eerie scene in Miller's memoir, Time Bends, where he describes driving Ralph Nefus from Ann Arbor to New York to join my uncle and one other Michigan student to get on a ship to go across the Atlantic to fight in that war and the entire time looking over at his friend and thinking, I'm looking at a dead man. Miller thought that he should go fight in that war, too, as did many committed um, students of that period, but not many of them did. There were about 4,000 Americans who went to fight in the war. And Miller mostly acknowledges that one of his concerns was that he would die in that war and not go on to become a famous playwright. Do you think he thought he had something to say that needed to be said in that sense of not going on to become a famous playwright? Or was it was it ego or was it that I have to say something? The world No, it's a combination always, I think, for all writers. There's a ego involved. There's a feeling that you can say things that others can't in a way that others can't. Um, he hadn't fully refined is writing yet, but one of the things he was doing at the Michigan Daily was covering the early ramifications of the staunch anti-communist movement um, in Michigan when the Michigan legislature was uh, trying to pass laws that would ban communists from activities in the state. Miller covered those hearings. Um, he was already concerned with civil liberties 
um, and the power of the state to affect and destroy lives and corrupt them. And so, you know, I, I know he was already thinking about many of those issues, but it was a combination of of a writer's ego and of a desire to clarify the world for himself and for readers that drove him. You know, the thing I always think about with Arthur Miller, and I do associate him with not just grandma and grandpa, but with their generation and their um, moral compass. Um, and I think, you know, we could talk about the crucible because it perhaps relates most directly to the, um, you know, the um, red scare, but it's his play, all my sons that, uh, that really, to me, is sort of emblematic of their moral groundedness and their understanding of um, how, in a sense, the drive for capitalism, like you said, the the responsibility on the breadwinner, the dad, and yet a greater responsibility to um, the common good or to all of us. You know, they are all my sons, essentially, is what he needed to, Joe Keller needs to realize. Um, and it's his own son who confronts him with it. You know, it's just such a powerful um, play. Um, well, it certainly is. And the listeners should know that you've been in that play. <laughs> many moons ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, that's the first time I ever saw it. Yeah. And, uh, Did you see it with Annette Benning? then? I can't remember. At Tracy Lett? Yeah, okay. And, you know, I thought Tracy Lett was terrific. I think you were as good as Annette <laughs> Benning. Yeah. Wow. That was many um, minutes ago. But, um, but, but you're right. Um, that play is really about integrity mm-hmm. and yeah. compromise and the forces of society that and of personality, but of both that can affect one's decisions and, and also survival. What does it mean to survive? How do you survive? How much do you compromise to survive, mm-hmm. um, both financially and, more importantly, morally? Right. And my father, in choosing not to name names, to be fired from his job, to go through that blacklisting for five years, mm-hmm. made a moral decision. Um, let's talk, let's shift gears now and talk about someone who could be seen as um, in juxtaposition to your dad because she was spying on him. <laughs> Bernice Baldwin, such an interesting figure. Um, so who is she? First of all, Sarah, yes. it's Bernice. Bernice. Sorry. That's Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I, I've almost gotten it wrong myself, but um, Bernice Baldwin was a working class Detroit woman who was recruited by the Federal Bureau of Investigation in the early 1940s, the you know before 1945, to join infiltrate the Communist Party of Michigan. She was not a disillusioned communist who was now trying to uh, spy on her former colleagues. She was not. Uh, motivated in any way, really, other than she was going to be paid for it. And she had some vague notions about the evils of communism, but not a true commitment. 
uh, one way or the other about what she was doing, except that the FBI persuaded her this would be a good job for her. So she infiltrated the party in 1943 or 44 and rose through the party ranks from then until 1952 when things started to uh, explode in Detroit with the hearings and another hearing in Washington. And she came in from the cold hmm. hearings. By then she had been the secretary of the party in Michigan. She had files, voluminous files on the party with hundreds and hundreds of names and card indexes. And all of that became a matter of public record during the hearings. On February 29th, Leap Day hmm. of 1952, she was called before the committee. She with the uh, guidance of the committee counsel, Frank Tavener, um, went through all of her files and names. And at some point, she was asked about Elliot Mariana. Mm -hmm. She corrected the, the spelling and the pronunciation and started talking about my father and my mother. And with that was in the morning. And at the lunch hour, a subpoena server for the House on american Activities Committee appeared in the newsroom of the Detroit Times with a subpoena from for my father to testify. His name had just been named, and he was summarily fired from his job at that moment. So here's the thing. What role does Berenice Baldwin play in this larger drama? or travesty, or trauma. And to my way of thinking, she was a big mm -hmm. player. I really have not been able to dredge up much, if any, animosity towards her over the course of my research of this book. Um, and, you know, I've always believed, whether I was writing about soldiers in Vietnam or incidents like this, but really most aspects of human confrontation, it's the people in power who matter and should be held responsible. You know, I don't blame a soldier for what happened in Vietnam, except for those few who committed atrocities. Mm -hmm. um, and similarly, I don't blame Berenice Baldwin in any way for what happened to my father or my family. I think in a... Another episode, we might have talked a little bit about this, but let's uh, revisit it. It's just so interesting. You ended up finding her um, descendants, so to speak. Is that right? Were they grandchildren or children? They were grandchildren. They were grandchildren. Right. She, was, she was called the grandmother's okay. spy. It was in 1952. Mm -hmm. um, so her children are all wow. gone. That grandchild, the first one is one of the ones mm -hmm. that I found in suburban Detroit, and we had a pretty interesting conversation, as I maybe had said in an earlier podcast, in which we both sort of acknowledged that we really didn't know much of the story until much later. She said she had no, the, the granddaughter said she had no clue about, and was very close to her grandmother, but had no clue about it until her own mother 
died. And in her mother's closet, she found all these clippings about mm-hmm. her grandmother, the grandmother's mm-hmm. die. That was the first time she knew about it. And so she said to me, you know, you know, what did your family talk about? And I said, mm-hmm. not much. And she said, well, that was kind of a weird period. Do you know it? if she read the book? I presume that she has. I have not seen her since then. I've been to Detroit a few times and mm-hmm. tried to look her up. but um, So I, I certainly haven't heard anything negative from her or her family. One of the things that um, always surprises me, because I did study theater, um, and and to take on a different persona requires a certain amount of um, creativity and conviction and uh, commitment. And it just is fascinating when you think about, sometimes I think about people in today's environment who are dissembling. <laughs> and I wonder, how do they have it in them to do that? It requires a lot of energy. Um, and they're not actors. Well, yes. <laughs> but, um, but then someone yeah. like Berenice, um, she even attended, was it a baby shower? She knitted a blanket. I mean, she befriended the people she was keeping tabs yes. on, right? I suppose that's one way you could sort of chastise her or be bewildered by it. But yes, she did befriend a lot of those people um, and attended baby showers, weddings. There's one where I describe how she kissed the bride and then named the name. You know, um, So uh, she was not a polished person or actor. Um, certainly, as we all know, when people get into deeper relationships, um, some other things fade away. And she always must have thought about the duplicity of what she was doing. But I don't think that that completely um, eliminates the possibility that, you know, Mm -hmm. there were real friendships there. And she, in various ways, uh, enjoyed, admired, liked the people she was dealing with. Um, Because they were, you know, some of them were mysterious, paranoid. Um, there are people like that in any group, and many of them were really pretty normal people. So we've said that you held no animosity uh, towards her. She was, in a sense, a bit player. Who are some of the figures that you think um, have responsibility but also um, uh history can judge fairly as, as really um, doing damage. Well, Joseph McCarthy is not right. the subject of my book. Certainly he is the key one there in terms of the House Un-American Activities Committee and specifically the figures in mm-hmm. the book. I would start with John Stevens Wood of Georgia, who was the chairman of the committee then, Relatively obscure, really unknown to history now, but he chaired the committee in the early 1950s, late 40s, and he was a classic Southern segregationist who voted for every Jim Crow piece of legislation he could, who was elected to Congress in Georgia then in what was literally called the wow. white primary. 
African-Americans were not allowed to vote in the Democratic primary. Um, Georgia was an all-Democratic state, as were most of the Jim Crow, was most of the Jim Crow South. Um, he had opposed civil rights, rights legislation in Congress. He had opposed almost all legislation supporting labor unions. But what struck me, it, two things struck me at a deeper level. Um, one was that in the in around 1914, 1915, he'd been involved in the probably the most famous lynching in Georgia history, the lynching of Leo Frank, a Jewish industrialist who was accused and convicted falsely of murdering a 13-year-old girl in his pencil factory wow. in Atlanta. It was a time of deep dislike for quote-unquote carpetbaggers. Frank had come down to Georgia from, the, from New York. He was Jewish. There was this whole pastoral mythology of the South changing and, and racist populist anger growing up. And so Frank was a victim of that, and he was convicted, but it became such a huge issue that the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, all of the northern newspapers covered it every day for a year, kind of like the OJ trial of our era. And it was out of that that the Anti-Defamation League was actually born, the conviction that Frank was falsely confused. Finally, a moderate governor of Georgia um, commuted Frank's death sentence, not his sentence, but his death sentence. And that so enraged the powers that be in Marietta, Georgia, um, a little bit outside of Atlanta, where the young girl was from, that they organized a plot where they would drive up to the prison where Frank was being held, seize him from prison, drive him back blindfolded to a field outside of Marietta, mm and lynch him. The mastermind of that plot was a Marietta-based judge named Newt Morris. And Newt Morris's chief disciple was none other than John Stevens Wood, the future chairman of the House on American Activities Committee. And it was Wood who drove the car that carried Leo Frank's body to the mortuary. And this is the man calling my father un-American. There's one other small little sort of irony, which is that John Stevens Wood's grandson said for the book that Wood had a difficult relationship with his second wife after that wife discovered that he was part Cherokee India. That even he, the definer of what it means to be American, wasn't American enough for his own wife in that limited sense of what it means to be an American. I think one of the things that strikes me as I hear you tell this story is the idea that every family does have a secret and that to some extent, as we live out our current lives, this generation, we're carrying the ghosts of those secrets with us. It informs our behavior, whether we know it or not. It's, um, uh, it seems like 
shedding light on them or as you've done um, digging into them to exercise them is would be healthy for our country but also for each of us as we think about our families or how our own actions um you know, it's interesting. There's an interesting contradiction there, too, which is America, probably more than the United States, maybe more than any nation in the world, right. really doesn't look at its past. It's constantly looking to the future and not dealing with the realities of what's happened, but mythologizing them to so many in so many ways. If America faced up to what it has done to Native Americans and then African Americans, even in the same way that Germany has honestly faced up to the evils of Hitler, it'd be a whole different place and sensibility in this country. But because we keep burying the past, it yes. makes it harder to get And mythologizing past. it. Um it's a small little detail, but I um, I saw something recently about certain wedding sites no longer promoting um, southern plantations as places for weddings, and and it struck me as such a um, such an interesting uh, moment in our in our time where it seems like such a logical thing to do, and yet it's 2019, almost 2020. And it is making headlines. Um, you know, it's. Uh... I think, you know, that's a small thing, but I mm -hmm. think it reflects something much larger. I think much of the tumult of this period, much of the explanation of Donald Trump, not by no means all of it, but a large part of it has to do with what mm -hmm. feels like a reckoning. And a retrograde action against that reckoning of the treatment of so many minorities and, and women in this country, um, that there's, it, it inspires both change and fear from that change. And I think so much of what's going on in America today is related to that. It seems though that uh, to some extent, the leadership in that is coming from, um, businesses you know it's a it's 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 almost that um uh we're voting through our consumerism and what we tolerate or not and yet the elections are perhaps in some ways a different direction not not completely i'm generalizing but um but this example um that i just gave is obviously coming from pressure from people who use the sites you know it's it's and yet there's more argument over a Confederate flag on public property. You know, it's um, uh, it's, it's curious that way. Um, yeah. Well, it, yes. we do live in a capitalist society, and so you know, money can work, or pressures of consumerism can work in the worst ways or the best ways, and often both. I want to read a review, a segment from uh, the New York Times book review, which ran in June um, by Kevin Baker um, about a good American family. And he he 
says, a winner of two Pulitzer Prizes in journalism and one of our most talented biographers and historians, Marinus has used his prodigious research skills to produce a story that leaves one aching with its poignancy, its finely wrought sense of what was lost both in his home and in our nation. It is at the same time a book that, like his family, never gives in to self-pity, but remains remarkably balanced, forthright, and unwavering in its search for the truth. Uh, that was a glowing review, Dad, uh, in the New York Times. In fact, every review of this book has been glowing. Um, and one of the things I think that's important is that it it speaks of the resilience, but also that the Red Scare was a phase. And right now, I know I feel so buried in this sense that we are living in um, dark times. It's hard to imagine what will puncture that and sort of this, when will this trance be over uh, that that so many seem to be under? Is there any parallel or lesson we can um, take from how the Red Scare um lost steam and how we might emerge from the era we're living in right now? Well, as I said earlier, history doesn't precisely repeat itself. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in terms of when the Red Scare broke, it was when McCarthy went too far and started attacking Eisenhower, the president, and the U.S. military. Um, It was because certain courageous Republicans of McCarthy's own party stood up against him, most notably Margaret Chase Smith of Maine with her statement of conscience. Um, There's no Margaret Chase Smiths today, Justin Amash of Michigan, who's switched to become an independent is the one close example of that, um, closest Um, Another major difference is that McCarthy was a senator and the House Committee on on American Activities were members of Congress. And now we're dealing not only with a party that is completely uh, behind the president, but it's the president himself who is the most reckless person sort of propagating the use of manipulation and fear and demonization of the other in ways that were done during the Red Scare era. So in some ways, we're in a more precarious position today than we were then. But you contrast that with the enormous changes in American demography and the advances for African-Americans and for women and for people who have been cast aside um, as irrelevant in the American process before. Um, And there's more of that. There's an awakening, a reckoning, as I said. And so, you know, I I inherited my father's optimism. I'm probably a little bit less optimistic than I've ever been. But I truly believe that the short term is iffy, but if we get through it, hmm. there is a much better place. Um, I want to talk to you about the title of this book, A Good American Family. 
and also talk to you about the title that uh, you considered. And along those lines, you know, the I think the working title for Death of a Salesman was The Inside of His Head. Um, and I love that. It's always interesting mm-hmm. to think about a book or any piece of work and, and that the creator of it had to decide on a title that they uh, thought uh, really represented that work, but then that's how we come to know the piece. Um, so let's first talk about A Good American Family and where that came from. Um, it came from a speech delivered by a member of the House on american Activities Committee, Charles Potter of Michigan, who said that he was confounded, bewildered by the notion that anyone who came from a good American family could be attracted to the Communist Party. Hmm. And I thought, well, I came from a good American family. Um, And that's the whole point of my book. Um, And so the first working title for the book was Judgment in Room 70, because from the very beginning of my research, my goal was to place my father's experience in the context of what was happening in that committee room and the other people in that room. So the figures in the book include Chairman Wood, Charles Potter, the one who said a good American family, um, the counsel for the committee, Frank Tavener, a Virginia segregationist who'd come out of the Harry Byrd political machine segregation now and forever. Um, the civil liberties lawyer who defended my father, George Crockett, who was an African-American from Detroit, not a communist himself, but believed deeply that the civil liberties that were being endangered to American communists reflected in many ways the difficulties that African-Americans had had in the United States from the beginning. And he saw the correlation and wanted to defend those civil liberties. Bernice Baldwin, the aforementioned grandmother's spy, the informant, all of them different aspects of the American experience that went through my father. And so that was the working title. But in the end, as I reached the end of the book, I realized that that's the structure, but the essence, even though my father isn't in every chapter by any means, the essence of it is the experience of my family. I also had this amazing photograph of our family at the Statue of Liberty in 1952, only a few months after my father had been fired from his job, with the Statue of Liberty in the background and the family huddled in front of it. And I knew that had to be the cover of the book. And the title, A Good American Family, fit that so much better than Judgment in Room 70. 740. But that was another factor. It, you know, some of my titles I love, some I'm lukewarm about. I think I got this one right. Uh, so it's interesting. Um, I'm always fascinated about this use of the word American or America and how we use it and often don't say the United States of America. Uh, because When you Mm -hmm. say the United States of America, there's something about that that um, I think asks you to think about this sense of um, 
uh, many things coming together. We are united as, you know, the United States of America. But for, for whatever reason, we often just say America and we say American. And that word um, gets to be defined by, it seems like, whoever's in power. <laughs> but what do you think, uh, how could we define what it means to be an American in a way that might stand the test of time and also um, not become divisive. You know, you're absolutely right about United States and the more the power that that has versus American. So, you know, part of it is just grammatical shorthand. It's you can't say United <laughs> no. States American. Yeah. Um, so, but um, America. The definition of it is democracy, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the notion that all men are created equal, the notion that the arc of justice bends, the arc of, of history bends towards justice, um, and the fact that there are many ways to be to show your patriotism. It's not just the sunshine patriots, as Thomas said said at the beginning. Um, it's what you're willing to stand for and fight for. And that includes trying to make this country the best, live up to its standards, which it has never done, but one can only hope that constantly working toward that goal. Well, that would normally be a great way to end this, but I have another question for you, which is how does being a member of the Communist Party fit in with this sense of America and how did that change over the course of, um, you know, 20 years or so or your father's experience? Um, because one thing I think that people will use often is, well, if you don't agree with capitalism, let's say, then you're not American, or they start to um, divide it into um, litmus tests and so forth, uh, and decide how to push someone out of that larger umbrella. So when we talk about communism, um, uh, that had some parameters. Well, it's a loaded word because of the uh, horrible, murderous, tyrannical, autocratic history of the Soviet Union and the and communist China. Um, and so it's hard to think about communism outside of that context of its of its mutations into that. Um, but the word itself is an economic system. It's not inherently um, going to lead towards that repression and autocratic rule. Um, it's hard to separate that, but and, and uh, as my father, in the one statement he's made that even obliquely refers to that period of his life, said that he was naive in his, in his prejudices and in his thinking, um, and he was. I mean, so you have to acknowledge that. And also accept that there were a small number of American communists who were working directly with the Soviet Union, and that the vast majority of them were working to try to better America. 
and loved America. And there's no way that anyone can look at my father's life and say anything different from his service in World War II when he was the commander of an all-Negro black unit um, that went to Okinawa um, through the statement that he issued and his life as a newspaper man. Um, so even as one might disagree, as I do, his own son disagrees with some of the the positions he took as a younger person. I admire the idealism while acknowledging the naivete and um, admire his right to say what he and do what he believed within the conf- within the parameters of the American experience. Um, well, you know, one of the things that happened as I was researching and writing this book, I started out wanting to learn more about my family and my father and mother in particular. And I ended up understanding more about myself. And one of those things was, you know, why am I the way I am? Why do I have a certain outsider sensibility? Why do I have such a strong commitment to racial justice and to a search for the truth? And I think that the outsider sense that my father felt, um, that so many Americans feel, and they're yearning to be part of the larger American story, um, is what defines me. Um, I have both of those aspects to me. I'll always carry with me a certain sense of being a part and an outsider, and also a deep longing to connect that to the larger American experience. Do you think that he felt an outsider as um, a Jewish East Coast kid going to the Midwest for college or uh, later um, this being isolated and called, uh, you know, un-American because of his politics? Oh, I think it was probably both, Mm -hmm. Um, starting with that first experience in Michigan, although as I said, there were a number of Jewish kids at Michigan then, and so he was more a part of the the uh, political and cultural mainstream um, there than he would be during those, I think it was the five years that he was blacklisted. Mm-hmm. And then even beyond that, I mean, think about, this is something that I didn't really allow myself to think about either, which is that from 1957 until 1982, when he retired as the editor of the Madison Capital Times newspaper, working for the paper those entire 25-plus years, he must have always felt a certain amount of anxiety, uncertainty, fear that his past would come back to affect him and haunt him, and it never did overtly. But I'm sure that it infected Um, inwardly, and part of that would be making him feel more like an outsider. Well, certainly when you talk about trauma, I mean, he got subpoenaed. He was at work. He was fired at work, right? And he saw the the um, I want to say uh, facts. It wasn't a facts then, but you know, like he, the place where it all uh, came crashing down on him was the place that he then spent his entire career, so to speak. You know, he 
he was in that environment, um, exposed to it um, daily. Yes, that's right. Um, although the Capital Times was a far more protective place than the previous newspaper. The Detroit Times was owned by uh, Hearst. It was a staunch anti-communist paper itself that he worked for, never showing his own ideology in his workplace and doing a job professionally. The Capital Times in Madison had basically made its name fighting against Joseph McCarthy, Mm -hmm. their home senator, standing up against him. So in that sense, he was protected at the Capital Times, but in the larger society, Mm -hmm. still could have felt vulnerable. Yes. Dad, I'm grateful to you for writing this book I can't imagine it was easy because really what you did is uh, immerse yourself in that shadow that's, you know, followed our family, a shadow that I think many in the family had found peace with in the sense of knowing it was there, um, but it was the elephant in the room, so to speak, um, never mm-hmm. named. And and I think at least, you know, if we talk about how families um, pass down experiences or even trauma that perhaps the current generation didn't live through, but that it's in the family dynamic, the best thing you can do is name it and uncover it and shine light on it. And, and, and then if it is a shadow, you've named it and you can then decide if you keep it around or if you try to tell it to take a seat. Um, And so I think what you did is the start of that. And I know with um, my kids, um, it's interesting because I think the way our current culture deals with shame is so different. People are shameless right now. And so um, maybe it's easier than to talk about past moments in which there was shame and dissect it and now say there needn't be, um, nevertheless, our relatives lived with it and felt it and we can have empathy for them. Um, But I I see this in other aspects of our family as well with mental illness too. And my belief is that the best thing I can do with my kids is let them know as much about the past as I can so they can not be surprised by it but also then um, understand themselves and why they might feel certain things. Um. Yeah, you know, the common side of our family, which is really the defining side of the family, my mother's side, because it was much larger than my father's, and he basically became part of that family when he moved to the Midwest, has a certain... Um, shyness and melancholy to it, um, and uh, somewhat of a history of of, of mental illness, um, as do almost all families. Um, but what I've discovered after this book came out is that it has been universally appreciated and accepted by every member of that extended family that I've talked to. Um, and that, you know, I, I'm not sure I believe in the word healing, um, but I do believe that information can help 
resolve and reconcile. And so to that extent, the, this book is part of an effort to do that with, with this wonderful family that I'm a part of. You've just listened to an episode of the David Marinus Ink in Our Blood podcast. We hope you'll subscribe to the Ink in Our Blood podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or whichever podcast service you prefer. If you loved it, we'd love it if you left a rating or review. Ink in Our Blood is produced by Metamorphosis.agency with creative direction by Monika Ryan and strategy and technical production by Jeremy Ryan. Music is by the legendary Ben Sidron. I'm your host, Sarah Marinus Vandershaft. Thank you for listening. I made my way to the back nine. They call me the Iron Man. Watching out for the sand traps. Formulating my plan. Out on the back nine.